0: Good morning. It's a good holiday weekend crowd. Good to see you here. Good to have you with us online who are with us virtually today and uh, take your copy of God's Word and, and be turning to 1st John the epistles at the end 1st John 316 and we will continue our walk through this letter that John wrote to these Christians in the first century and today I want our thoughts to center around love on display, love on display. In chapter 3 that we've been studying for the last few weeks, uh, John's been drawing a contrast, if you will, between two spiritual families in the world. There is the family of God and then there's the family of Satan where he dominates. And we are reminded each week as John writes about these two groups of people and, and the evidences that show which family we're in, we're reminded of the characteristics of these families. The children of God uh, in the family of God are those who are saved by faith in Jesus Christ, those who have been forgiven of their sin, those who have been born again uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Those in the family of God have been supernaturally placed there by God himself as we confess our sin and we ask for God's forgiveness. In Jesus Christ, we are included in the family of God. And of course, it is not just the forgiveness of sin now and the difference that God makes in our life in this in this world, but it is the eternal destiny, the hope that we have in Jesus and spending eternity with him in heaven and all the promises of God that we really can't even begin to fathom. So being saved and being in the family of God uh, is, is a wonderful experience. But then those who are, are still lost in their sin and those who have not come to Christ, those who have heard the gospel and refused the gospel, those who will not confess their sin and maintain their sinful lifestyle and maintain the resistance to God, they may not realize it, but they're in the family of Satan. They are under his domain and they live out that life. And of course, the sad part of that is if a person goes to this life and dies in their sin, they will spend eternity separated from God in a place of eternal punishment, the lake of fire. And what a sad eternal destiny to come to and in understanding these two groups, as we have each week in this passage and in this chapter, we understand how imperative it, how imperative it is and how critical it is in this life to make the right decision with the relation to Jesus Christ, to make the right decision to trust Him as your Lord and Savior. And if you're watching or you're here in this room today, I don't know the state of every soul. God does. But if you're not saved or you're not sure what would happen to you when you die, if you're not sure of your eternal destiny, Today's the day of salvation. Now is the time to come to Christ. Don't put it off. Be in the family of God. Now, as we understand this, John tells us there are some evidences. There are things that indicate which family we're in. You say, well, how do I know which family I'm in? Am I saved or am I not saved? Am I in the family of God or am I not in the family of God? Well, you can know you're in the family of God if you simply come to Jesus and ask him to save you. You can know that because God promised it. But then John gives us some evidences, and I'm only going to talk about three by way of introduction here that really plays right into what he's going to say about love demonstrated that we'll see in this passage. There are three evidences John gives us or has given us in this passage that, that show us that we can see that we're saved, that we can see we're in the family of God, and the first one is this, an inherent righteousness, an inherent righteousness. We talked uh, two or three weeks ago about the fact that children— take on the characteristics of their parents that we as parents imprint on our kids they act like us they talk like us that can be good or bad but they do the things that we do they do what they see us do the same is true in a spiritual realm as we are in the family of god and that that we're saved by faith in jesus and our heavenly father we take on his nature his characteristics and the bible says that god is holy and he's righteous so our practical lifestyle will begin to take on the characteristics of our positional lifestyle, meaning in Jesus, we are made holy and righteous before God the Father. But in life practice, it takes a little more work, doesn't it? It doesn't like happen automatically. There's a sanctification process. One of the evidences that we truly are in the family of God is there is some level of change in our life over time. In other words, there is this inherent righteousness, this inherent drawing of God, I got saved when I was 11, joined the Navy when I was 19. Uh, I can say clearly that I'm further down the spiritual path now than I was at 11 and 19. And you should be able to see that in your life. You should be able to see God moving us to an, an inherent righteousness. Now, the converse of this is pretty evident. A person, a man or woman, young person, boy or girl who lived recklessly in sin, who lives in the pursuit of sin with no care or or conviction about sin or righteousness gives evidence that they're not in the family of God. Uh, And you say, well, you know, you can't judge people. Well, Jesus said we can know a tree by its fruit. And so a person who has no inherent righteousness in them at all is not in the family of God. Secondly, which is what John will will major on today in our text, one of the evidences that we know Jesus, one of the evidences that we're in the family of God is that we love people. that we care about them. You say, well, you know, what do you mean we love people? I'm not talking about a mushy, you know, wanna hug everybody's neck and be be all emotional about it. No, you have, as a child of God, you know this. We have a genuine, heartfelt concern for those around us. We have a genuine love for those who are in the family of God. We have an affinity for one another. Why? Because we're all born into the same family by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you're a, a child of God, and I'm a child of God, we have a spiritual kinship, a fellowship. And if, you, if you're saved and you demonstrate you're saved, I'm just flat out gonna like you because I like Christians, okay? I mean, I like fellowshipping with Christians. I like hanging around with Christians. I like talking about Jesus and I like spiritual things. So that inherent love in your life is a demonstration of the love of God in you. In fact, if you are in the family of God and you're saved, you're gonna know this, even though lost people might aggravate, aggravate the daylights out of you by the way they act, you have a compassion for them. You have an empathy for their lostness because you and I understand as children of God, how serious it is that they hear the gospel and that they know Jesus Christ. And so a love in your heart, and your life, again, the converse is true if you go through life and you don't care anything about God's people you don't care anything about God's church you don't care anything about God's word and you don't want to have fellowship with the church and you don't care anything about lost people I would suggest you check your relationship with Jesus because Jesus loves lost people and we should love lost people Jesus loves his church and we should love his church as well and his people and then finally not only is it this righteousness that we see as evidence of our salvation, and we see uh, the love of God in our hearts. But if you're living for Jesus, now listen, one of the evidences that you really know Jesus is the world don't like you. You say, well, is that an evidence? Oh yeah, that's an evidence. If you're living for Jesus, and you're standing up for what's right, and you speak up and you speak the truth, the world is not gonna like you. Now, if you blend in with the world, and you buddy buddies with the world, and nobody can tell that you really know anything about Jesus, you might want to check your salvation. In fact, William Barclay said it this way, and I quote, wherever Christians are, listen to this, wherever Christians are, even though they say nothing, they act as the conscience of society, and for that very reason, the world will often hate them. As a child of God, you are the conscience of society. They see you in your walk with Jesus, and it's a perpetual reminder to them of what they ought to be, of what they need. And so it bugs them. And they would just as soon not have the conviction, which is why they don't like you. So that's an evidence that you are saved. You say, well, how can I know more about this love aspect? Well, John in our passage today tells us what love looks like, he puts it on display, it has been put on display, and he wants us to know what love looks like, and of course, that example is in Jesus. So look at verse 16 in 1 John chapter 3. He said, by this we know love, just pause right there for a minute, he said, by what I'm about to tell you, we can know what love looks like, we can know what it is, we don't have to, we don't have to guess We don't have to try to define it. He said, here it is. By this we know love because he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. Now watch the last part of this verse. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's a pretty strong verse, isn't it? He said, hey, you wanna know what love looks like? It looks like Jesus. You wanna know what love looks like when it's on display? It looks like Jesus. Jesus is our example. What did Jesus do? He left heaven took on a human body incarnation, lived a sinless life. And then he went to a cross, took a beating that wasn't his, a crown of thorns smashed on his head that wasn't his, hung on a cross and took sin that was not his. He died for you and me because he loves us. It wasn't enough that God says, I love you. He demonstrated in the person of Jesus Christ who came and put love on display. Jesus sacrificed himself, listen now, Jesus sacrificed himself for the benefit of you and me. Jesus willingly gave up what was his by right, his glory, his majesty, laid it aside and come here and took on the form of a servant, Paul said, so that he might die the most shameful of deaths, hanging on a cross and become sin for you and me. Jesus said in John 15, 13 and 14, greater love has no man than this than that he lay down his life for his friends. What a statement. And then Jesus said this, you're my friends. Wow, that's very powerful, isn't it? He said, you're my friends. No greater love can a man have than to lay down his life for his friends. You say, pastor, what does love look like? It looks like Jesus. In fact, it wasn't just this sacrificial love that Jesus gave, it's a perfect love. Do you understand this? When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just die for those who were kind to him or those who were his favorites. He didn't just die for his group of disciples that he had befriended. He didn't just die for those that you think that he picked out of the world. Bible says Jesus paid for the sin of the whole world, which means Jesus died, listen to this, for people who hated him. Jesus is still today willing to save those who hate him, those who blaspheme his name. Think about the reality of that. While the Roman soldiers were punching him in the face, Jesus was going to the cross to die for the man who was hitting him. While they were pulling out his beard, Jesus was going to the cross to die for the man who was pulling out his beard. For those who were blaspheming his name and insulting him, and kicking him, and beating him, and whipping him. Jesus was steady on going to the cross to die for those men because he loved them when they hated him. The centurion who was in charge of the execution squad, the Bible says he looked up and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Now, there's all kinds of theological opinions about that. But I am of the persuasion the man got saved that he looked up and he saw Jesus on the cross and he realized what had happened and he realized who he really was and he got saved while that man was leading the very group that would hang him on the cross and kill him Jesus died for him so he could be saved that's pretty powerful isn't it you see in our human nature we like to reciprocate kindness for kindness don't we in other words if you're nice to me I'll be nice to you and if I'm nice to you I expect you to be nice to me In my flesh, if you be mean to me, well, you get the picture, right? That's not how God works. The world today, think about our society today. They blaspheme the name of God, which is holy above every name. They insult God with their arrogance. The world, mankind today, is so arrogant. We think we're in charge of everything when we're fools. We make decisions that we think are so wise and we're fools. And yet God loves us anyway. That's amazing, isn't it? That's perfect love. That's what Jesus did. He he went to the cross, he sacrificed himself. Now watch this. This is the hard part right here. You say, well, Jesus is God, so I get how he would love us like that. Oh, but what's the rest of the verse say? So should you love the same way. In other words, we are to love like Jesus loved. We We are to love with the same purity that Jesus loves us. We're to love the world, to love our friends, to love our family, to love the church, to love our enemies, to love those who hate us. Now that's hard. Let's just be transparent about that's hard. That's difficult. As a matter of fact, it's not just difficult, it's impossible in the flesh. Can't do it in the flesh. But in the power of the Holy Spirit, we can. The power of the Holy Spirit, we can Demonstrate the love of Jesus to those who hate us. Listen, Jesus said this, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, so also love one another. Jesus said, I want you to love like I've loved you. I want you to demonstrate this kind of love to the world. Well, how can we define that? How can we define the kind of love? And it really can be defined in one term. It is a self-sacrificing love. It is a willingness to sacrifice what is ours and what is our rights What we have a right to do for the benefit of other people in other words to give up our rights for the benefit of another person to help them to encourage them you see if we would love one another like that in the church you'd never have arguments in the church because you know where arguments come from in the church no you offended me i'm not doing that you know what the love of jesus says yeah you offended me but i love you anyway and I'm going to keep loving you no matter what you said or what you did. You see? That's the difference. It's a self-sacrifice. ...for the benefit of others. Listen to what this writer said. He said the effacement, and the word effacement means the sacrifice of, the rendering of, or the, or the turning loose of, okay? So don't get tripped up by the words. Some of the older writers, you gotta have a dictionary when you're reading what they wrote, and you're like, good night, man. What their vocabulary must have been incredible. But listen to what he said. The effacement or the sacrifice of another's rights and perhaps existence of one's own sake is the essence of hatred. In other words, what he's saying in that fancy way there is he's saying to take another person's rights, even to the point of taking their life, is the essence of hatred and murder, okay? Now watch, now listen to this. But the effacement or the sacrifice of oneself for another's sake is the essence of love. You get what he's saying there? To willingly uh, sacrifice my rights or, or my benefits or the things that are mine in life that I think are mine for the benefit of another is the fullest demonstration of love. It's the, it's the fullest expression of love. Now remember last week John used the example of Cain and Abel. Remember that? Cain was upset with his brother over the sacrifices they brought to God. And so Cain was jealous of his brother and he, he killed him. He hated him and he murdered him. Jesus is the opposite of that. Jesus laid aside, uh, sacrifice. what is his, his own life to come here and, and love us. So love is always that self-sacrificing, that sacrifice of self-benefits and rights for the, for the benefit of another. I mean, a husband and a wife. have you ever noticed that when uh, I do premarital counseling and young couples and sometimes older couples that come in and I tell them, I said, you know, your, your marriage will go through phases. And the first phase is the honeymoon phase, and it's the you know, various periods of time it lasts, six months, a year, maybe. I said, you know what happens during the honeymoon phase? Your mate can do no wrong, right? I mean, uh, you, you, you basically, in that honeymoon phase, you've surrendered all your personal preferences and desires. You just, you just don't care because you're so infatuated with one another. None of that stuff matters. But then that day arrives. You come home from work, and your lovely bride has moved all your fishing poles from behind the door and put them somewhere. And suddenly, your personal preferences re Right? And so you have your first fight over a fishing pole. Or it can be the other way around. You know, you've left the cap off the toothpaste for six months, and she hadn't said anything because it's been this honeymoon phase, but finally you come home one day and she's mad. And you go, Sweetheart, honey bunch, what are you mad about? She goes, This is the last time I'm putting a cap on this toothpaste. And so you have a fight over the toothpaste. Listen, at some point in the marriage, process, you rediscover your individuality. And when that, when that rediscovery of individuality comes, then there's conflict. Why? Because suddenly we've put stakes in the ground. Suddenly we've put stakes in the ground and said, this, is, this thing, we're not doing this anymore because I don't like it or whatever that case may be. It's the opposite of love when we do that, isn't it? When we put a stake in the ground and we say, look, this is what I want and I'm not changing it and this is the way it is, because I like it and that's the way I want it. That's not love, that's selfishness. You see, in a marriage in particular, and it's the same in life with the the body of Christ or with the world, to to be willing to sacrifice what is a personal preference, listen, for the benefit of someone else to be able to minister to them or love them or encourage them. I mean, really think about it for a minute. What value is there in some of the things we care about in life when you compare it to a human soul? I mean, you know, somebody opens the door in the parking lot and takes a chunk of paint out of your car. How do you react? Well, that's my car. Yeah, and in five years, you're going to need another one. You know, who cares, right? I mean, yeah, it makes you mad. But what about the person, you know? What about the person? Yeah, they're a knucklehead for doing it. I mean, you know, all that's true, okay? But do do they need a love of Jesus? Yeah. Jesus did get mad at people over stuff like that. And they insulted Jesus all the time. Who's the only people in the Bible Jesus got ugly with? The self-righteous religious bonds. Nobody else really offended Jesus. Why? Because they loved him too much. Hey, I'm going to the cross to die for you. What else can you do to me, right? I'm going I'm to pay for your sins. That's the point John's making here. We are called to love people like that. Now, again, it's impossible in the flesh. Can't do it. That's why in your marriage, if you don't have Jesus in your marriage, you're in trouble. Because I'm telling you, you're going to be in trouble. If you don't have Jesus in your life and you don't have the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, you're going to be in trouble because you can't love people like that because it's not in our flesh. That's what John's calling us to do. Now, here's a practical application. You say, well, you know what, Pastor? We're not called every day to lay down our life for people. You know, Jesus said, do likewise. I lay down my life for you, you lay down your life for others. Well, There may be those instances at some point in life where you might be called on to actually sacrifice your life for somebody else, but not very often here in this country. But there are other ways we sacrifice ourselves for the benefits of others. Look at what John says in verses 17 and 18. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Verse 18. My little children, let us not love, now listen to this, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. The practical application is this, that we, if we have the ability to minister to somebody, even if it costs us something, we're willing to minister to them. Let me give you three examples of how we might make practical application to ministering and loving others, and the first one has this, sacrifice of our time time is a precious commodity isn't it do you have all the time that you need do you feel like you have all the time that you need sometimes i get to the end of the day and i'm thinking man it cannot be 10 o'clock can't be eight o'clock can't be nine o'clock do you have enough time it is a personal sacrifice to sacrifice our time to minister to other people to give of our time to set aside other things in life that we might have a preference to do to minister to somebody else. That's a a sacrifice. To encourage someone. You say, why would I do it? To listen to them. To listen to them. To have fellowship with them. To encourage them. Maybe to pray with them. It takes time. It takes sacrifice. It takes setting aside things we might want to do. That's a sacrifice. How about this one? How about sacrificing talents? Maybe there's a, a person who's been sick, maybe a widow, maybe an elderly person, and you have the health and wherewithal to mow their grass, and you go over and mow their lawn. That's a sacrifice, isn't it? Maybe, maybe it's a, a, a skill you have. You can fix their car, and so you go fix their car. Maybe you know how to fix computers, and you fix their computer or you use your talents or your skills to minister to that person. In that case, you are sacrificing both time and talent to meet the needs of somebody else in their life. And oh, and here's one. How about financial resources? I don't know, we could look around in here. I don't think any of us are missing any meals. What do you think? Not saying anything. I'm just saying I don't, I, we all look healthy. Let me just put it that way, okay? We all eat fine. I suspect we all have a place to sleep. Parking lot looks like we all have a car. There's automobiles out there. Most of us have more than one car. Would you say, would you agree with me, God's blessed us with stuff? And it's just stuff, right? I mean, it's money in the bag It's stuff. It's just things. We demonstrate our love for others when we're willing to turn loose of some of our stuff are willing to use some of our resources to be a blessing to somebody else. And it might be simple things like anonymously helping somebody with a utility bill or a mortgage payment or a rent payment or putting brakes on somebody's car or whatever the case may be. As God moves you and as you know about it, you can do those things. But it is a willingness, listen, it is a willingness to use what God's given us to be a ministry and a blessing to somebody else. And here's the fact that we don't, in this country, like to think about much. God did not bless us with everything that we have to consume it all upon ourselves. That's the biblical truth. Now, it's okay if you have stuff and have nice stuff, and you've worked for it, and that's fine. God gave it to us, and we ought to use it to be a blessing to others, and that's what John's saying here. If we see our brother in need, we see somebody in need, naked, destitute, without food, without housing, without clothing, and we don't help them, How dwells in us the love of God, that's what he's saying. How is it that if we have the means to help them and we don't help them, how can we say that we love them? Because here's the bottom line. Love, watch this now, we're gonna wrap it up in that. Love is always connected to action. Love never stands alone without action. If you say you love and I say I love, then it's always connected to something. When I told Sherry that I loved her, I didn't just say I love you and if it ever changes, I'll let you know. No, when I said I love you, then I demonstrated that I love her. And I try to continue to do that. When I was trying to get her to, to love me back and marry me, I did all kinds of stuff. Bought her, I bought her all kinds of uh, Girl Scout cookies and put them in the locker and I and, and, you know, flowers and the whole deal. I had taken her out to eat pizza or whatever I could afford at the time. Why? Because love has action. Love Love not only says I love you, but it does things because you want to. So John's simply saying, how can we say that we love someone if we don't connect it to action? He said, my little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Love is demonstrated by what we do. And all too often in the church, we like to talk about, oh yeah, we love people. And we love the brethren, and then we treat them like the devil. No, love, love has action to it. Love is connected to doing things. Matter of fact, God so loved the world that he did what? gave okay it's connected you can't you can't have love without some kind of action without some kind of genuine response in fact let me give you two ideas about loving the brethren and loving the lost and we'll look at one last thing you say i love the brethren in the church i'm saved and i love the church and i love my brothers and sisters in christ well how do you demonstrate that how do we demonstrate that let me give a couple ideas if we really love someone listen now we don't gossip about them If we really love them, we don't talk about them behind their back. Why? Because we love them and we don't want to hurt them. Even if you got some juicy stuff, even if they messed up and it's true, everybody messes up, right? Even if they messed up, confessed up and they're back where they were to be, we got no business going around talking about the mess up, right? Because it does nothing but hurt. So if we love somebody, we don't gossip about them. If we love somebody, we don't envy them. We don't want what they have. We don't envy where God has them and what they're doing. If we love them, we don't envy them. If we love them, we don't speak evil of them. Well, I could get on social media right here and spend the rest of the day. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. And I know none of you in here are guilty of this, so here you go. If you put something on social media and it goes on the internet, everybody in the entire world is going to see it. They all look shocked. You're like, oh no, I didn't know that. Why is it Christians put the dumbest stuff you've ever seen in your life on social media? What in the world are Christians thinking? here, let me take a picture of myself brushing my teeth in my underwear and put it on on social media. Number one, nobody wants to see that. <laughs> now, that hurts your feet. Look, nobody wants to see in your underwear. And number two, nobody cares. Why do Christians go on social media and say things so they won't say to people face-to-face. Why? And I've, listen, I don't have Facebook, but I know people that do, and they love to run to me and go, did you see this? Do you, did you see that? No, I wish I hadn't, but did you, did you read this? No, I wish I had, no, why? Hey, why does a Christian, and this is true, I'm not a true example of a person who talks a good talk? Oh man, yeah. I love people and you're in the ministry and loving people. And I've seen some of the stuff they put on Facebook, and it is the ugliest, meanest, nastiest, hurting people's feelings, calling. What, what in the world? No, you know what John's saying? If we love people and we love the brethren, we we will consciously be aware of that and we won't do that to people. We won't be ugly to them. We won't, we won't make them feel bad. We won't try to make them look bad in front of other people. Why? Because we love them. We love them. I'll tell you this, somebody tries to hurt my wife, they're gonna find out. They're gonna find out how much I love her. I'm just gonna tell you that right now. Because I'm not gonna let that happen. So why would we, if we love one another in the body of Christ, why would we make somebody feel bad? Why would we say something to embarrass them? Why in the world would we do that? There's one answer, you don't really love them. If you do that, you don't really love them. Again, I know none of y'all are guilty of that. Somebody out there is, because I've seen it, knock it off. Don't do that stuff. It's wrong, don't do it. You say, what about the lost world? Very quickly, listen. Say, well, you know, pastor, the world's wicked, and it's in sin. Yeah, and so were we before we got saved. So relax, well, Pastor. We can't condone sin. Never said we have to condone sin. Well, let me tell you the way that we attack people personally. We don't go after people. We don't. We don't try to uh, arrogantly and with pride and and judgmentalism go to somebody and say, "Man, you're so lost. You're gonna bust hell wide open. You're a sorry rascal." Well, now I'm really going to have a hard time telling them about the love of Jesus, aren't I? Because I didn't show them any love. It's, oh, pastor, they're in such gross wickedness. And Jesus died on the cross to save them. So is it our job to run around with a big old Bible slapping them upside the head with a thing? No, it's not. If we're going to love lost people, we've got to love them. That doesn't mean condone their sin. Listen, I'll tell you this. If you just be loving and kind like Jesus and speak the truth, that'll do all Because when you tell them, look, Jesus said, don't do that. And that, that kind of thing that you're doing offends God, but he wants to forgive you and he wants to save you. That's all you got to do. Because then the Holy Spirit's either going to get a hold of them and they're going to get convicted and get saved or they're going to really be mad at you. It, 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 there's no way around it. But the fact is you approach them in love. You don't don't yell and scream at them and and tell them all kinds of ugly stuff because that is not like Jesus. Jesus never did that. I'll give you one example and we'll close. Jesus met a woman at the well who had a whole bunch of husbands and living with a man she wasn't married to. She was was an immoral, lost person that most Jews in that society would have said, man, she's beyond help. Jesus sat down by a well and had a conversation with her and loved her and talked to her and she ended up getting saved. That's our example of loving people. Not running around smacking them on the head because we think we're all sudden so holy because we got saved and we're so right and they're so wrong. Sin is wrong. And we never condone sin. And we never say sin's okay. Sin is wrong. Adultery is wrong. Fornication is wrong. Lying is wrong. Everything in the book is wrong including all the ones we like to stand around on, homosexuality and same-sex marriage, it's all wrong. It all offends God. Abortion is wrong, it's murder, it offends God. Taking prayer out of schools is wrong. All the stuff we've done is wrong. The only way to fix this for people to get saved. Not gonna fix it by being angry at them and yelling at them all the time. Don't get anywhere, by the way, when you get all emotional just have to tell them it's wrong. Let me close with this. Look very quickly. Verses 19 and 20. By this we know that we are of the truth, and it shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, our conscience, God is greater than our heart, our conscience, and those all things. Here it is. And I'll just hit this real quick. When we see God's love at work in our lives, when we have the conviction that we love and care about the brethren in the church and, we, and we're careful about what we do with lost people, sharing the gospel with them, loving them, regardless of where they're at and what they're doing, we love them. When we show them the love of Jesus, you can know you're saved because it's the Holy Spirit doing that. It's not you doing it. And we can know, he says right here, and by this we know that we are of the truth because God's producing in us the love of Christ. Okay? And even when our heart condemns us, our conscience in verse 20, even when I mess up, Even when I sin and and I'm convicted, my own heart condemns me and says, man, you're some kind of preacher, all right? You just lost it. You just lost it with that dude and you should have been telling. I know, and my heart condemns me for that and the Holy Spirit condemns me for that. Listen, God's greater. God's greater and knows that I'm saved and knows that I want to love them people even when I don't know how to do it. So it's an evidence to you when you love people like Jesus that you're really saved. When you demonstrate the love that Jesus demonstrated for us well here it is are we loving like that that's really the question Jesus said uh, John said Jesus died for us on the cross he sacrificed himself and he said you do the same thing well it's tough the only way you can do that is in Jesus are you in Jesus this morning and if you are if you're saved are you loving people like Jesus told us to love people doesn't matter if you like them or not. Jesus says you gotta love them. No matter what they do, you gotta love them. No matter how mean they are, honored, cantankerous, sinful, you've got to love them. And we gotta ask God to help us do that. Do you know that you're saved this morning? I wouldn't miss the opportunity. It's imperative that you understand uh, that Jesus is the only way you can be saved, the only way you can be forgiven of sin online here this morning. If you're not sure you're saved, would you pray and invite Jesus into your heart right now? Would you ask him to save you? Let's pray. Father, this is strong stuff for us this morning. It's so hard in our flesh to love like you tell us we're supposed to love. God, it's difficult. It is hard in our flesh to be kind when people are mean to us. But God, you called us to love even our enemies because you loved those who hated you. You loved those who were killing you you loved us before we even do you. So God, help us in the power of the Holy Spirit to have that kind of heart and that kind of mind. And help us, God, to love the body of believers and to be kind and encouraging. And help us to love those who need to be saved. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. If I can help you or pray with you or you want to know that you're saved, would you come on the first verse and let me help you. Being here this morning, it's this a great crowd for a holiday weekend. Uh, I mean, to be honest, I was thinking it might be kind of thin, but boy, it's good to see y'all. Thank you for being here. Uh, tonight, we're going to be uh, in our second sermon in the series of the Ministry of Christ, and tonight we're going to talk about Jesus turning water into wine. Remember that? It's a really good passage, so I want you to come uh, be a part of that tonight if you can. Of course, of wine at five o'clock. Anything else? God, thank you for this morning and how good it is to be among your people. God, help us to take your word to heart, Lord. Make it a reality in our lives. God, we can't make it a reality in our flesh because we are weak. But Holy Spirit, you can make it a, a great reality in our lives to love people around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.